As you are finding your seat, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of Mark, the 11th chapter. Mark chapter 11, and I want you to put your finger on Mark chapter 11, verse 28 and verse 30, and know that we are very quickly going to be in the 12th chapter of Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter 12. So into Mark chapter 11, the beginning of Mark chapter 12. So if you've ever had this experience, you know it's not a pleasant experience where whether it's in the front yard of your home or whether it's at work, after a meeting where someone comes up to you, points the finger at you and says, just who do you think you are? If someone poses that question to you, for those of you who've never had that occur, understand that the motivation behind that question is not a curiosity that needs to be uh, peaked. I mean, it is not that they lack information about you, like, what's your middle name? I'm really curious about that. If somebody is asking you, just who do you think you are? There's generally frustration behind that question. There is anger behind that question. There's skepticism behind that question. There's suspicion behind that question. They are trying to pose to you that they are frustrated, mad at you. We're walking through Mark's gospel. We come to the 11th chapter. The religious leaders of Jesus' day take him aside after one episode that just had them up in arms. And it's where Jesus comes into the temple, he overturns the tables, and then we read in Mark chapter 11, verse 28, by what authority are you doing these things? This is the religious leaders asking this to Jesus. Or who gave you the authority to do them? In the EPV, that is, uh, for those of you that are not familiar with that version of the Bible, it is the Eldridge paraphrase version of the Bible. So in the, in the EPV, the religious leaders are pointing their finger at Jesus and they're saying, just who do you think you are? Who gave you the authority to come into our temple to say this about us and to overturn the tables here. Mark chapter 11, verse 30, Jesus answers their question with a question of his own. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. Now this, this seems really strange, doesn't it? It's strange in, in a couple of ways. One is we, we lose that one of the common rabbinical strategies of the first century world was for rabbis to answer a question with another question. We also, we could miss this, that Jesus is putting the religious leaders into the corner. Now, how is he doing that? Well, he's asking them, where was the authority of John the Baptist? Was it from heaven or was it from man? The baptism of repentance that he came and preached, was it from heaven? If the religious leaders say, oh yeah, it's from heaven, then Jesus's reply would be what? Hey, why didn't you follow? Why did you reject his ministry? If they say, well, it's from earth, it's from man, then all of the other crowd that had gathered around, it was listening to this back and forth of questions from Jesus and the religious leaders and religious leaders to Jesus, if they would have said, well, of course it's from man, there would have been protest because the widespread belief of, of the people of Jesus' day was that John the Baptist was a prophet sent by God. So he's backed them into a corner. And you know what the religious leaders do? They say, oh, I don't know. They just, they just kind of shrug their shoulders. Uh, we, we don't know. And so then Jesus does this. He says, well, let me tell you a story. 
let me tell you a story. And so here's the story. Starting in verse 1 of Mark chapter 12, and he began to speak to them in parables. Important to know, this is a parable that Jesus is saying, a man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. Maybe I was sixth grade, seventh grade. I think Miss Moore was my English teacher. She turned into our, our literature book that I had and said, today we're going to study John Bunyan. John Bunyan wrote a book called The Pilgrim's Progress, 17th century Baptist preacher. He was in jail. He writes this story that is the uh, best example of what Jesus is doing right here outside of the Bible, which was, it was an allegory. So if you're reading John Bunyan and he has this character and his name is Christian and Christian goes on this journey and he meets all these people that have these names that are really, really strange names like despair, despondency. Well, if you think John Bunyan is actually telling you a historical story that all of this happened and this is history, you're going to completely misunderstand the story because it's an allegory. And Christian represents, well, he represents Christians, represents you, represents me. The journey that he goes on, it represents the journey of our sanctification. The people that he meets are characters that we meet in our life. There wasn't a real Christian, but they are Christians. So it's an allegory. And so when Jesus is telling this parable for us to read it and say, hey, this, all this literally happened, we're going to misunderstand the parable altogether because an allegory represents things. The characters, the events, they represent something else. And so when Jesus is telling this parable and he says that there was an owner who planted a vineyard, the people that heard it, the first century audience, they would have said, aha. Oh, it's a vineyard? I know exactly what he's doing. So you say, well, what in the world's going on here? Well, in the Old Testament, the vineyard represents Israel. All throughout the Old Testament, you're walking through the Old Testament and you turn to Psalm chapter 80, verse 8. There's the vineyard representing Israel. Jeremiah chapter 2, there's the vineyard representing Israel. Ezekiel chapter 19, there's the vineyard representing Israel. Hosea 10, verse 1, there's the vineyard representing Israel. One of the most famous examples of this is in Isaiah chapter 5. You see it on the screen, verse 7 here. For the vineyard, vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the, let's say it together, house of Israel. I'm, the Old Testament is just telling us when you see vineyard, it represents Israel and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. I mean, this is common. If you've grown up in Alabama, help me with this here. The, the state flower for Alabama is, yeah. The state bird for Alabama is, you're better every service knew the bird better than the flower right there the yellow hammer so every state has birds they have flowers I mean we have things that stand they represent if you didn't grow up in Alabama I mean you you learn what it means to be an Alabamian by understanding the symbols if you grew up in another state you know state flower state bird and those kinds of things and these are things that are passed on from generation to generation you got to read why the state bird is called a yellow hammer it's an odd story but I don't have time for that here but uh, it's, it's just a strange story and I thought about including it into the sermon but I was like that is a rabbit that I really do not have time to kind of chase down and here I am, so, I'm still trying to chase that rabbit down right there. I so want to tell that story. Okay, back to the real story right here. So here we are, the Israel 
is Israel is the vineyard, the owner of the vineyard is who? God the Father. Uh, we have in this tenants, who are the tenants? The tenants are the religious leaders and the priest that Jesus is addressing in this very parable. Now, the religious leaders, the priests of the day, they fail to honor the owner of the vineyard. They fell to honor God, and the vineyard is overrun with weeds, weeds of false gods, corruption, and materialism. So guess what? The owner doesn't look the other way and say, ah, no big deal. I'll let them have it. No, the owner of the vineyard, God himself, in the establishment of his plan, he sends a solution that we read of in verses two through five. Will you read with me? In your copy of God's word, when the season came, he, who is he? It's God, sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another and they, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. So we have three servants, that the owner of the vineyard, God sent to, to preach to the tenants. You've, you've dishonored the owner. You're going in the wrong direction. All three of the servants are beaten. Some of them are killed. We can think of the Old Testament prophets. This is who the servants are. They're Old Testament prophets who God sent to call the nation of Israel and the religious leaders to repentance. And you know what happened to those prophets? Well, just think a little bit of history lesson from the Old Testament. You know Elijah? You remember Elijah? He comes, he preaches the message of repentance, and they kick him out of the city. He has to go in isolation, into wilderness. Think about Isaiah. You remember what happened to Isaiah? He is sawed in half. You remember Zechariah? You remember what happened to Zechariah? He's stoned at the altar. So each of these three servants, it represents the treatment of the prophets, the most recent prophet that would have been on the mind of all of the followers of Jesus was who? The last prophet, John the Baptist. Remember what happened to John the Baptist? Decapitated. I mean, the, the, the treatment of these servants parallels the treatment of the prophets here. So what is the owner of the vineyard to do? If the tenants will not receive the servants, I love the way Martin Luther, who's a German preacher, reformer of the 16th century, he was looking at this passage and he said, you know, if I was God, if I was God and the world treated me as I treated them, I would kick the wretched thing to the curb. But the owner of the vineyard had another plan. While we see the rejection of God's prophets, we also see in this parable the extent of God's love. He didn't kick the wretched thing to the curb. Notice what we discover here is that God, in light of the rejection of the prophets, we read in verse 6, he had still one other. Would you look in your Bible? and see that that one other is a beloved son. Fondly, he sent him to them, saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him, and they killed him, and they threw him out of the vineyard. Here is the leaders of Israel. The tenants, they reject the prophets, and so God, the owner of the vineyard, he sends his own beloved son. It's almost like Mark's gospel and John's gospel are talking together here. It's almost like they're sharing the raw notes. And the most famous passage in the New Testament is John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he sent his 
only begotten son, his beloved son. We hear echoes of the story in Genesis chapter 22 of Abraham being asked by God to sacrifice his beloved son, Isaac. So God saw the rejection of his servants and he didn't say, I'm done. I'm washing my hands of them. I don't know what to do here. He sent his own son, his beloved son, his beloved son that God the Father, because he's infinitely wise, knew would be rejected, knew that he would be killed, knew that he would die a cruel death on a Roman cross, and he did this because he loves you this much. He loves me, he loves the world this much that he would send his son into the world to be a redemption for any person that would trust him. I heard the story of Randy Alcorn. He's a writer, he's a preacher, he's written a wonderful book called Heaven. It's a really helpful book if you're struggling with the loss of a loved one. Randy Alcorn tells the story of a young teenage daughter who goes shopping for back-to-school clothes with her mom. Her mother had been burned and disfigured in both of her arms, and that is something that this uh, young teenage daughter knew all of her life and got accustomed to, but there was something about being in the sixth grade, seventh grade, eighth grade at that kind of uh, point in her life when she was going to pay right there in the, in the store for the clothes. Her mother reached out her arm, and there this young teenage daughter saw the way that the store clerk just glanced and then came back to her mother's arms and looked with this sort of horrified look, two seconds too long, and there was something that happened in this teenage daughter's stomach. She just got mad and frustrated. She went back into the vehicle. She said to her mom, hey, listen, mom, can you, can you when we go out, can you just wear long sleeve shirts? Just for me, first time she was just really felt embarrassed. The mom didn't say anything. The mom listened. They go home. They go their separate ways. The young daughter is back in her room later in that night. Mom comes into the room before her daughter goes to bed. Now, the daughter knew that her mother had been marred by a fire, knew that she had been burned, but never the full extent of that story had this mother told. So it was in this moment that the mom decided that she would tell the full story. And she said, honey, it was uh, when you were a baby boy, a baby girl, excuse me, a baby girl, and the fire alarm woke me up in the middle of the night, and, and your room was an inferno. I, I ran down the hallway through the flames, into your room through the flames. I reached down into your baby crib and pulled you up, wrapped you up close to me, and ran out through the flames, ran down the hall through the flames, ran into the living room through the flames, and ran out the front door. And it was only then where the adrenaline began to die down that I realized the excruciating pain that I was in and I was so fearful that you had been harmed, but I looked into your eyes and I realized that the flames did not touch you. And it was in this moment that this teenage daughter had this stunned silence upon her face. It was only in this moment that she realized that her mother's burns were burns for her existence that her scars were scars of her sustenance. 
Her wounds were wounds to protect her. She was saved through her mother's pain and sacrifice. Never again would this young daughter look upon her scars with a source of embarrassment. They they became an emblem of sacrificial love. And as Randy Alcorn tells the story, she begins to weep, this young daughter does. She embraces her mother's hand, she holds it to her lips, and she kisses the marred hands of her mother. Relish this truth. Bask in this truth. Know the power of this truth that God shows his love for you. While you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. He died for me. He died for us. You are that loved by God. You say, I don't know if that's true. You say, I doubt that that's true. If you doubt it, I'm here to tell you Jesus has the scars to prove it. This is how much he loves you. So see in this parable the extent of God's love. See in this parable the reception of God's prophets. But finally, this morning, I want you to see the extent of God's holy judgment. Now now look with me at the rest of this parable. Starting in verse 9, will you see in your copy of God's word the rest of the story here? When, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? Jesus quotes, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. So God is loving. He is so loving that he would send his son. He is so loving in this moment that what he is doing, this is such an interesting moment in, in what it was called salvation history because Jesus is telling the, pro, he's telling the high priest in this moment, he's telling them what really is going to happen to him. He, he is holding out an opportunity for the religious leaders who are, who are hatching this plan to kill Jesus. And he is telling them, if you go forward with this, you will answer for this. He's telling this story hoping that they will come to their senses. He's telling this story hoping that they would realize the error of their ways. He's hoping to tell this story so that they would repent, but they don't. And what Jesus tells us in this parable is there are consequences for their actions. He is warning the chief priest. He's warning the teacher of the law. He's warning the elders. I know your thoughts. I know your murderous plots. He longs for them to repent. But he says, if you don't, if you do to me what you did to the other servants, you will answer for this, and there'll be new tenants, new tenants who will receive the vineyard. Now, you say, I'm getting lost. David, I'm getting lost here. how, How does all this work out? Well, think here. The birth of the church is the fulfillment of this parable. The, the very birth of the church at Pentecost is the fulfillment of this parable. When, when Peter stood up, a, a Jewish person, and preached repentance and be baptized, it is, it is the birth of God's work in the church in this, this glorious way where the vineyard of Israel continues to go forth in the church. And so we're all here because the vineyard's still around. 
It is still giving life to each and every one of us who have turned to Jesus. It still grows. Now, the truth for us to ponder this morning is that even the religious leaders who heard this message, who rejected God's call, God still used it for his glory. You know, that's what, that's what is so astounding to me. It goes back to the book of Genesis where Joseph is telling his brothers, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. So it was evil that Jesus was crucified. It was horrific that Jesus was crucified. It was sinful that Jesus was crucified. But before the foundation of the earth, God the Father knew that by sending his son as the redemption for all of humanity's uh, sins, that his son would be crucified. So he allows evil to occur oftentimes for his glory and the redemption of humanity here at the cross. This is what he means when he says in verse 10 that the stone that the builders rejected, that's Jesus. It's become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. See the quotation from Charles Spurgeon here on the screen. If you reject him, Spurgeon is this great preacher from the 19th century there in London. If you reject him, he answers you with tears. If you wound him, he bleeds out cleansing. If you kill him, he dies to redeem. If you bury him, he rises again to bring resurrection. Nothing can thwart God's plans. Nothing can stop God's plans. Even your sin cannot stop God's grand and glorious plan for the redemption of all who would trust in him, for the redemption of the new heaven and the new earth, that his glorious plan cannot be thwarted by our human opposition. It cannot be stopped. It cannot be modified. It is ultimately going to come to its fruition even through humanity's sinful decisions. This is the, the paradox of the crucifixion here. Now, I want you to, to see not just how we're saved in this parable here, but I want you to see how this is a living parable. How, how this parable intersects with your life and my life. And we don't have much time here, but I just wanna, I wanna land this sermon by you thinking how this parable is a comfort and how this parable challenges you to make a decision. So let's think about how it's comforting. What this parable is telling us in this very moment this morning is that all around the world, maybe even in your own life, maybe even in your own work experience, maybe even in what you're experiencing, there can be opposition to the way and the will of God and you can be sinned against. You can be hurt, you can be marred by that. And here is the temptation to believe that God is an absent tea landlord who is oblivious to it, who is allowing things to happen because he doesn't know about it. And even in our world, we see massive injustices. We see Christians that are persecuted. You know today that there are, there are, there are people across the world who are killed for their faith, imprisoned for their faith. And it's tempting for us to say, where is God in the midst of this? And it's tempting for us to say, will, will there ever be justice served? And what this passage reminds us of is our God is so loving. 
He is so loving that his love and holiness is expressed not only in his grace, but also in his judgment. So for every person that has been sinned against, that that person who sins against you will have to answer to a holy God. God. God doesn't look upon sin and say, ah, no big deal. God doesn't look upon sin. Have you ever been in a situation where you thought to yourself, they're getting away with something and it's just completely not right? You've seen it where where things get covered up under the rug, they just get swept under the rug there. And you say, it's not right. And you know what? It's not right. And what the Bible tells us is these religious leaders, these chief priests, they will have to answer to God for the crucifixion of his beloved son. And all of us will have to answer to a holy God for the decisions that we make. And in that is a comfort because we have a God who sees all, knows all, and is in control of all, even when we cannot discern exactly why he's allowed this or that to occur. You need to know, God doesn't wake up in the morning and say, oh, I need the angels to give me the latest intel briefing on what I missed while I was asleep. Do you, do you know that that's comforting? That God is never informed of anything? He doesn't learn anything? Everything that has occurred in the past, everything that is occurring in the present, and everything that will occur in the future, God simultaneously, he knows it all in the moment. He is that infinitely wise and knowledgeable. So it's a comfort. But also it's a challenge. Now, why is it a challenge? Because God in his providence, he is calling you, as he was calling those religious leaders, to hear this message and to repent. And for each and every one of us that hear the message that you're a sinner, I'm a sinner. We have all sinned and we've all fallen short of the glory of God. And if we trust in the sacrifice of his son, do you know what we receive? Not what we deserve, which is the wrath of a holy God, but you know what you receive? You receive his forgiveness. But you have a decision to make. You, you don't receive that forgiveness automatically. You have a decision to make. Will you decide today to turn to Jesus in the face of your sin? Or will you today say to God, I've got it. Will you say to God, thy will be done or my will be done? Will you say to God, I turn to your son for the source of my salvation or are you saying to God, I am the source of my salvation? I've got it here, leave me alone. Every one of us, based upon how we answer that question, all of us will answer to a holy God and his holiness will extend to us his grace through Jesus or his holiness will extend to us the judgment of God. What will it be for you? Has there been a time in your life where you've admitted that you were a sinner? Has there been a time in your life where you've believed the very truth of this parable that God saw your sinfulness and he sent his son to die for you? Have you committed your life to him? Have you prayed to him, God, forgive me of my sins. Thank you for the gift of your son. 
If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, guess what? You will be saved. The chief priests and the religious leaders, they crucified Jesus on Friday, but on Sunday, he was raised to defeat death and to defeat sin. And when you put your faith in him, he defeats the sin of your life and he gives you victory over the grave that all of us will one day experience. So what will it be? Do you got it? Are you saying to God, I got it? Or are you saying to God, help me, Lord Jesus? Are you saying to God, thy will be done? Or are you saying to him, I've got it. My will be done. What will it be? How you have answered that question, how you will answer that question, it makes all the difference for today. More than that, it makes all the difference for the tomorrows of your eternity. Let us pray. Gracious God, we come to you this morning grateful that you're a God who forgives us. And any person who is worshiping online this morning, any person that is in the sanctuary this morning, that if they would turn to you and say, God, I believe that you sent your son to live a perfect life, to die a saving death, that, that you died for my sins, That if we believe that he was raised on the third day and that the story of the gospel is a true story, but it is a story that we trust in, that, that we will be saved. Lord, we pray for family members and friends and co-workers who maybe are running from the truth of the gospel. I pray that we would be the light to be able to, to show them you. Give us courage this week to live in a way that looks different, to point them to the source of that light that shines through us. I pray that every person that is here has that firm foundation of you as Savior and Lord. We pray that in the name of Jesus. Amen.